Um, if you have your Bibles, let's dig into God's Word. So uh, we are going to take a break from Proverbs, which uh, I've been enjoying studying that with you all. But we're going to take a break and go to one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Um, and perhaps you're wondering why, but I hope we'll be able to see why. And that's the Tower of Babel, or Babel, depending on uh, how you have pronounced it in the past. So uh, take your Bible, if you have it, and turn to Genesis 11. It's on page 8 in my Bible, so you can see how early on we are in God's Word. Genesis 11. And as you turn there, um, we live close to Washington, D.C. Uh, we are uh, well aware, most of us, of all the monuments that fill uh, the capital city of this nation. Uh, you think about it when you're, especially from Virginia, you're, you're crossing uh, from Virginia into D.C., one of the first things you see on the D.C. skyline, which is a subdued skyline, so one of the first things you see is the Washington Monument, the peak of the Washington Monument, all right? And we understand why that's there. So we understand why cities like D.C. have monuments. They're, they're built to honor someone. So in the case of the Washington Monument, monument it's, it's to honor the, the first president of the United States, George Washington. Um, perhaps even more famous, but something you can't necessarily see on the skyline, uh, is uh, the Lincoln Memorial, just right down the lawn from the Washington Monument. So if you've been to the Lincoln Memorial, you've entered there, you've seen Abraham Lincoln on this like throne-like chair. Uh, and, and in part, there's, there's words everywhere in that uh, memorial, but in part, you see these words emblazoned above Lincoln. It says, in this temple... As in the hearts of the people for whom he saved the Union, the memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. So we could go on and talk about the Jefferson and different monuments, uh, and they're still being built in D.C. Um, but we understand the purpose of monuments, right? Monuments point us to the memory of something. Monuments are meant to honor a someone great or something great or a great name in the history of the world. So this morning, we're going to go and we're going to see a monument in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, so as I said before, we're going to break from Proverbs, we're going to take a one-week break, and we're going to see in Genesis 11 a monument, a tower reaching, as it were, to the sky. And, and just like any other monument, this tower stands for something. It acts as a shrine, a place of worship. So let me read for us Genesis 11, and we'll be in the first nine verses this morning, all right? Genesis 11. And since we are on Facebook this morning solely, I mean, make good use of the comment section. If you have questions about the sermon or insights or comments, just jot them down and I'll respond to them or someone else can. And that way we can sort of recreate in some smaller way the fellowship we enjoy on Sunday mornings. It's not the real deal, but we can make the best of it. Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, 
lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. So as we've already noted, this uh, chapter is very early on in the Bible and very early on in the beginning of the world itself. So just look at that first verse, right? Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Uh, so it's clear this comes at the very early stages of the world and the world's cultures. If you think about, if you just page back for, for um, the last few chapters, this passage, Genesis 11, is also coming right on the heels of a great act of God's judgment. You remember what that is? It's the flood that destroyed almost every creature God had made in Genesis 1. So you probably remember at least parts of the story of Noah and how God judged the wickedness of mankind with that flood. You can read about that later today in Genesis 6 through 8, chapters 6 through 8. So that's 6 through 8, and then you get to Genesis chapter 9, which the flood waters have receded, uh, and so God makes a covenant with Noah after the flood, and he commands Noah to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Then we get to Genesis 10, and we see that fruitfulness and that multiplication of people begin to happen. Uh, and we see a list of all these sons and descendants of Noah. They're spreading out. Uh, in verse 5 of chapter 10, we see the descendants of one of Noah's sons spreading out and having different languages and clans and nations. So, I mean, aren't we in verse 1 here saying that everyone had one language? Why is verse 10, chapter 10 telling us about many languages? Well, chapter 10 is sort of a, a summary of a big picture view of what's happening as Noah's sons spread out in the generations after Noah. But in our passage, in chapter 11, we get to zoom in and see how that spreading out that's documented in chapter 10 is taking place, particularly in one event on the plains of a land called Shinar. So let's dig in, let's dive in and look at this event more closely. Uh, and as is my want to do, uh, we have three points this morning. Um, I, for our next Proverbs sermon, I think I might have five, so, but they'll be shorter. But I'm just trying to vary things up a bit. But this morning, you got three. What man does, what God does, and why this story matters for us. What man does, what God does, and why this story matters for us. So church family, first, let's see what man does in this pretty phenomenal passage. Uh, look at verse 2. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. 
So it isn't clear uh, whether these people here in Genesis 11 constitute the whole of humanity at this point in history. But what is clear from this text is that it's a pretty sizable crowd and that they're migrating from the east. Uh, This migration, we've already hinted at this, is in keeping with the command of the Lord to Noah back in chapter 9 when he said, Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In fact, uh, that command, the creation mandate it's called, goes all the way back to Genesis 1, to Adam, where God told Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So here in chapter 11, people are obeying God's command. They're spreading out. They're migrating. They're on their way to fill the earth and populate it. So far, so good, right? But then in the second half of verse 2, we see them stop. They find a plain in Shinar, and they stop. They settle. And as you're reading this text, it seems pretty insignificant. Like, okay, just pass on that detail. But this is a great statement we shouldn't miss. This is rebellion. So these people have been tasked by their creator with a great privilege and a mandate to spread out and have dominion over the whole earth. And God has promised his blessings as they do that. Made in God's image, mankind is to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Why? so they can then give glory to their majestic creator king. Man and woman are kind of these vice kings given to the earth to then bring glory in the earth to the creator of the earth. That's their design. That was the mandate back in Genesis 1. That's been reiterated in chapter 9 to Noah. And now, the same the thing, this is happening in Genesis 11. See, God has has made these people thousands of years ago, and he's made you and me to bring him glory, whether we're Christians or not. That's the purpose of our design as human beings. And so his plan here to disperse his people throughout the world was a plan to bring himself glory. And catch this, it was a plan to make his name great in all the earth. But these travelers, it seems, decide that's not for them. So they walk right in the footsteps of their father, Adam. They deny God's rule over them and his command to them. And instead of dispersing and filling the earth, they settle. They stop. And to make matters worse, look at verse 3, they start ganging up. So they say, come, let us make bricks. What's the plan here? They say, let's burn them thoroughly. They're they're building bricks. They're getting bricks for stone and bitumen, a sort of asphalt substance for mortar, so they can make a city. That's what we see in verse 4. There, their rebellion is taking more shape. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city. Now, think about it. God's command for them was to spread out. But a city has walls. A city has boundaries. A city runs contrary to God's command to fill the earth. But they keep going. They say, come, let us build a tower with its top in the heavens. So they're thinking, okay, we got this city. 
The city needs to have a centerpiece, a ziggurat, a monument piercing the sky, a tower that's going to go all the way to heaven. And then we see their motivation. It's pretty explicit in the next phrase. Let us make a name for ourselves. These people, give it, give it to them. They're honest, right? They're not hiding anything here. They say to each other, come, let's do this. Let's defy the command of God. Let's build a tower that shows our defiance and let's make our name great. And then finishing up verse four, we see the the reason for this rebellion. They say, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It's pretty, pretty blatant, right? I mean, what was God's command? Fill the earth. What's their decision? Let's build a city so we don't do that. They're unifying against God. Instead of populating the earth as God's representative kings to bring him glory, they decide to build their own kingdom and establish themselves as kings and make sure their own reign is glorified. And church family, if we step back from this text for a moment, this great passion for prestige and power and fame, it's not a foreign concept to us, right? So Genesis 11 can feel sort of foreign. It's located in an ancient time, an ancient place. But even though we're not ancient Near Eastern nomads like these men were, each of us knows what they're after, if we're honest. Because each one of us knows how much we want glory for ourselves. And we covet the praise of others. Am I the only one? Now, really, our lives can seem meaningless if we don't have recognition that we need. If you think about it, we're constantly building towers to our own names. So for you, maybe that's just a constant pattern of turning conversations in your favor. Or seeking approval from your friends or your family with such abandon that when they neglect to give it to you, you get angry and bitter. Maybe it's valuing your own popularity so much that you'd rather die than lose it, or worse, share it with someone else. To consider from this text, whose fame are you seeking in your life? I mean, Christian, I mean, be honest. I need to be honest too. Did you make plans to exalt God in your life this past week? Or were you just thinking about how best to promote yourself and your own comfort and your own name? Maybe you're more of the introverted persuasion. And so you're just like, well, I I actually don't really care to be popular. I don't actually care to be that famous. I'm not really the power grabbing sort. I don't like the limelight. Well, I think if you're thinking about it, I think you can still see how you want to be praised, just maybe not as publicly. You still worship the affirmation you think you deserve from your spouse or your parents or your kids. You still want your name to be great, just within the bounds of your own little kingdom. Friends, we live our lives with insatiable desire to make names for ourselves. And this is one of the downfalls of many pastors, is that they cease thinking about how to make God's name great, and they try best they can to make their own name great. And in doing this, pastors are not, 
Christians are not. We set ourselves up against the rule of God and try to rob him of the glory only he deserves. If for honest, this tower here in Genesis 11 is much closer to our daily experience than we care to admit. We all build our own little monuments, our own little rebellions against God's authority in our lives. That's really what this tower is about. It's a shrine to man's hatred for the rule of God. So these men enter into a high-stakes game with God. They challenge him in open disobedience. This is a war for God's glory in Genesis 11. So that's our first point. That's what man does. Let's see what God does in response. Second point, what God does. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So again, this can be a familiar story to some of us or just kind of a a basic story to others. But let's not miss kind of the small little things we can breeze over. This is inescapable irony. See, what have we just seen? Man has just put his best foot forward. So he's built a huge tower with its peak in the heavens, seeking to threaten the throne of God himself. And how does God respond in verse 5? Look at it again. He comes down out of heaven to see their tower. This is humorous. See, God is depicted here as stooping down in order to get a better look because their tower is just that small. It's just that insignificant. It's just that harmless to God's power. It sounds a lot like the words of Psalm 2. If you have your Bible, let's flip over to Psalm 2 real quick. Psalm 2, coming right after Psalm 1. Right in the middle of your Bibles. Uh, Verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Does that language ring a bell? I mean, it's the same sort of unified opposition we're seeing in Genesis 11. It's this let us mentality. Let us as mankind get all our power and all our might and all our glory and let us make a name for ourselves. Let us break free from the bonds of our creator and his rule over us. His rule's not good for us. But look at the next verse in Psalm 2. This comes like a a crash on man's rebellion. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. See, man's attempt to rob God of his glory is puny, pitiful, and pathetic. That's what verse 5 is showing us. Sure, we might think we can reach to the heavens. We can challenge God. But in reality, when we do our best, God still needs to bend over and squint to see what we're doing. Now, of course, this is ironic language. God, of course, is intimately aware with everything taking place here. He knows these people's hearts better than they do. So this isn't ignorance on God's part. This is making a point. We're not taking verse 5 literally. Instead, this coming down is showing us as God's creation that he's not threatened by our plays for his power. 
He is enthroned above not only our world, but the entire universe. He's the king. These men are small and impotent. They're coming in the line of Adam, the one who had traded paradise for a chance to be God. And the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree, right? Man is still power grabbing. God is still showing himself to be the real king. And just like with Adam, God again shows his just judgment on man's rebellion. Look at what he does in verse 6. Genesis 11, verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So again, we have to understand this. God isn't saying these men present any threat to his power or position as the king of the universe. He, I, we've just seen how he needs to stoop down to even see their tower. But he, we are seeing that in their unified state, these men will continue to disobey God's command. Together, they feel invincible. Together, they think nothing will stop them in the pursuit of their own fame. Together, they will become so audacious in their insolence, so boastful in their sin, they'll become more and more entrenched in their disobedience and God's command will be rejected. So God says, they need to break up. What does he do? Verse seven. I love verse seven. There God says, come, let us. You see the contrast? So man has joined forces together against God. And what have they said? They've cut, said, come, let us, come, let us build a tower. Let us make a name for ourselves. But here in verse seven, God has the final word when he says, come, let us, let us go down. God in his justice and mercy comes down to meet the people where they are in their opposition to him. As always, we see mixed into God's judgment mercy. He puts into emotion a plan to prevent these men from pursuing their evil plan. And how does he do it? How does he break up their unified resistance? By confusing their language. Verse 7, come let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. God breaks off the construction project. It's over, guys. He makes their unified rebellion impossible by taking away their unified language. So since they will not disperse and fill the earth in obedience, he overrides their disobedience and makes them do it anyway. God always wins. Verse eight. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. The tower is left desolate. What had been meant as a monument to man's own glory now stands empty and deserted, a monument instead to their failure. So where are they to go? They have no choice but to break up and go their own ways. Disperse, as was always God's intention. Their glory proves to be empty and worthless. And what about that name they so desperately wanted to make for themselves? Well, they get a name in verse 9. 
Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. So the name was called Babel, which is a, a word meaning gate of God. And that's what they wanted, right? They wanted to get to the gate of God and threaten his rule and make a name for themselves. But there's also a pun going on here. Because Babel sounds similar to a Hebrew word meaning confusion, balal. So God is kind of making a pun. He's confused their language, and so that's why they'll be called Babel. And isn't this true? To this day, in 2020, we're still talking about Babel. And the reason we're talking about the name Babel, the name of this city, is not because they're famous for great power, but they're famous for confused strife. That's the name they made for themselves. God wins. Man's rebellion is unified, but God's judgment is swift and devastating. And the peoples are scattered, and God is shown to be sovereign. Friends, we can learn so much from this. In our sin, in our passion to exalt ourselves, we're just like these men at Babel. And in light of the way the story ends, can you see how feeble our rebellion can be? It's never going to succeed. God will judge. He will come out the winner, and sinners like you and me are going to be condemned for our rebellion. That's the end of the story. Or is it? For some it will be. But mercifully, there is more to this story as we read on in Scripture. Yeah, we've reached the end of Genesis 11, 1 through 9, but we haven't reached the end of God's plan for Genesis 11, 1 through 9. God, in his grace, has a much greater plan for the sin of Babel. A plan to bring himself glory and to save his people from judgment. So what's the plan? That's our third point, all right? Why this matters for us. So we've seen what man does, we've seen what God does in response. Let's see why in the world this story matters for us in 2020. So for that, take your Bibles and turn all the way to Acts. So the Bible is split up into two Testaments. You get to the New Testament, you see the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you get to the Acts of the Apostles, or what should be called the Acts of God in His Holy Spirit, through His Holy Spirit. So if you turn to Acts, look at Acts chapter 2. So here we're at the beginnings of the Christian church, and we see something amazing happen. So starting in verse... One of chapter two. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, that's the followers of Jesus, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, this is where they are, they're in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. This is a diverse, multinational multitude. And they come together, and they were bewildered, Acts 2 says, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in his own native language? 
Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. It's a lot of people. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So this is the account of Pentecost, right? When the Holy Spirit was sent to God's people. But church, in light of what we've just seen in Genesis 11, it's here at Pentecost that the events of the Tower of Babel are reversed. See, in Genesis 11, we see the rebellion of man shattered by God in his judgment at Babel. But now in Acts 2, we see that judgment of God now used to proclaim his mighty works of salvation. You see that the unity of the people at Babel was destroyed because their language was confused, right? But here in Acts 2, the unity of the church, God's people, the people made to glorify his name is created and strengthened because their various languages make clear the glory of God. You see? So in Genesis 11, tons of different languages because they were unified and they needed to be judged. They were unified against God. In Acts 2, tons of different languages bringing unity for God. God is flipping sin on its head. In Genesis 11, we saw a sinful world in rebellion against God, man making a name for himself and suffering God's punishment for that sin. But here in Acts 2, we see a sinful world still in rebellion against God, but a world in which God has now intervened through Jesus Christ. A world in which Jesus has come and emptied himself of the glory that his name deserved, receiving instead the punishment we deserve for our rebellion against God. Jesus lived in perfect submission to God, perfect life for God's glory. The desire of Jesus' heart was the opposite of the desires of our hearts and our sin. See, we want our glory. Jesus wanted God's glory. We want our names to be famous. Jesus wanted to exalt his Father's name in heaven. We want our sin and our pride. Jesus wanted God to be praised, and he humbled himself even to death, to see that done. While we were building towers to our own glory, Jesus died for us, making a way for us to be reconciled again to God. And he rose again, defeating the reign of sin and death, giving us new life if we repent and put our trust in him. This gospel that I just defined real quickly was the reality the church was living in in Acts 2. So as they saw God's glory revealed in the coming of the Holy Spirit, they saw the effects of sin begin to unravel. The gospel of Christ was breaking down the curse of sin and bringing glory once again to God through mankind. See, the need for confused languages was first a sort of monument to the judgment mankind deserved. It was a memory of their rebellion. But now in Acts 2, God's plan is redeeming history. 
At Babel, everyone had been confused because they couldn't understand each other. And here at Pentecost, everyone is confused because they can understand each other. The message of God's glory is being heard in all these languages by people from all these nations, and it's bringing glory again to God, not to them. God's name is being praised through the sin of the Tower of Babel. God always wins. His name is great. Well, maybe you're tuning in this morning uh, and you don't consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Uh, You respect Jesus, you respect most of the, the doctrines of Christianity, but it's not for you. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, it's a great honor for you to have, listen to just a few minutes of me talk. But just to be honest with you, I think for you, the Bible would still tell you that whether or not you hate God or you feel like you're okay with God, you are still ultimately living for your own glory if you haven't submitted to his kingship. And as a self-glory seeker, which the Bible says you are, the Bible wants to tell you out of grace your plans are going to fail. God will judge you for your pride that's in opposition to him. But that doesn't have to be the end of the story. The Bible would also tell you that in Christ, God has provided a way for you to turn from your sin and find in him salvation. So if you'll repent of seeking after your own glory and turn to him and seek to give him the glory that's rightfully his, if you confess your sin and place your trust in Jesus, trusting that he has died to undergo your punishment in your place, you will be saved. You will find your greatest joy in giving praise to his name alone. And that's what he's created you for. So if you turn to him this morning, I promise you, you won't necessarily find all the joy or success you want in this life. But eternally, you will find Rest for your souls in the design God has made you to carry out in the forgiveness that he'll give you through Jesus Christ. And Christian, brother and sister, Loudoun Valley Baptist Church member, I mean, I, I hope you can see this application coming. Where are you, where am I, still bidding towers to our own glory? So where are you still lusting for a name for yourself? It could be in the workplace, in your family, even in our church. Wherever you're seeking your own glory, you're going to be disappointed. That's one of the main lessons of Genesis 11. All glory belongs to Christ, the one who had all glory and yet humbly gave up his right to that glory to take on the form of a servant. Jesus gave up the glories of heaven to suffer for your sin. And now, Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, what? The name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, not the name of ourselves, our own little kingdoms, but at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. Christian, your life is made for so much more than the dogged pursuit of your own fame. 
God has set his grace upon you and given you the amazing task now of glorifying his name forever. He confused the languages of the men at the Tower of Babel in judgment so that now he receives all the more praise as a result. As he disperses you and me, as he disperses his church throughout the world to tell everyone about his grace so that every tongue, every language might exalt his name to the glory of God. So consider this morning, whose glory are you going to seek today, this week? I want us to turn to one more uh, passage before we conclude. So we started off in Genesis. Why not finish in Revelation, right? Turn with me to Revelation, the very last book in the Bible. And chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, and starting in verse 9. Revelation 7 and 9. So here we get a, a glimpse of heaven and the praise that will be given Jesus forever. And this is what John writes. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that's Jesus, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Friends, the thousands of languages in our world is first and foremost a memory, a monument to the sinful rebellion of man. But in Acts 2, we see that monument crumbling. And in Revelation, we see that what had been a monument to man's rebellion turned into a monument to the praise of Jesus Christ. Do you see how God just turns sin on its head? You see how sovereign he is? God always wins. The final purpose of thousands of languages is to be an everlasting chorus to the eternal glory of a name not ours, but God's. Christian, don't live for your glory. Live for this glory. Live for this name. Stop trying to make a name for yourself and live for the name that will last forever. The author and former pastor John Piper writes about this idea of Genesis 11 to Acts 2 to Revelation 7, and this is what he says in, in part of his summary. He says, The praise that Jesus receives from all the languages of the world is more beautiful because of its diversity than it would have been if there were only one language and one people to sing. He says it was the spectacular sin on the plains of Shinar that gave rise to the multiplying of languages that ends in the most glorious praise to Christ from every language on earth. It's astonishing. And this is one of the ways we can see the veracity of Scripture as it traces this one stream, this one thread from Genesis to Acts to Revelation, all ending in the praise of Jesus Christ. Loudon Valley Baptist Church family, let this vision of our future spur us on to tell people about Jesus this week. Tell them how they can be saved from sin and given new lips that praise the name of Christ. 
God will receive glory from all peoples and all languages. And that's motivation to tell the good news to those around us. I mean, think about it. We're surrounded by people giving everything they've got, sacrificing their families, their wealth, and their mental health to build crumbling towers to their own empty glory. It will end in their destruction. So let, this week, let, let's tell them about a greater glory to strive for. Let's tell them about a greater Savior on the throne. Let's tell them about a higher name to worship. Let's pray. Lord, this story always astonishes me. This thread woven from beginning to end in your word, as so many threads are. So Lord, we praise you because your glory is one that will never end. We have seen men of glory uh, be raised up uh, in, in the thousands of years of world history and we've seen their glory go away and crumble. But God, your glory will never end. And for all eternity, we who are covered by the blood of Jesus and joined to the church, his body, will worship you and cry out loudly, salvation belongs to our God. And around your throne at the end, that cry will come from so many different languages, all united in praise of the name. So Lord, call more people to yourself in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our towns, and in our world. Do the work of delivering people out of darkness, the pursuit of their own glory, transferring them into the kingdom of your beloved Son, the kingdom, the glory of which will last forever. We pray in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.